Coming up, check it out. A podcast from the Moraine Valley Library. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu slash library. This is Check It Out, a podcast about services and resources in the library. This is Volume 1, Number 6, recorded on December 10th, 2007. We're recording in a conference room on the campus of Moraine Valley Community College in Palos Hills, Illinois. He's Troy Swanson, teaching and learning librarian. And he's Joe Malarkey, collection development librarian. And today we're doing something a little bit different from our normal format on Check It Out. We have uh, invited um, someone special to join us. This podcast, the purpose is to... um, talk about resources and we want to remind everyone that libraries aren't just about the resources that you put on shelves or resources that you put on uh, maybe a computer file but that the people around you on a college campus are also resources so Joe do you want to tell us a little bit about what we're doing Troy we're here with our colleague Sandra Beauchamp who teaches communication creative writing and literature at Moraine Valley. She's also a published poet and a writing writer who is here to share a small sample of her work with us. Sandra, what would you like to read first today? Uh, Well, first, thank you for inviting me to talk about this. And I think the first poem that I'll read is entitled Cicada. Cicada. I know how the cicada feels, pedaling her way through earth, her struggle in this dirt world, to stay safe from skunks and squirrels, the prying beaks of birds. Safe until that season comes calling, the time that calls us all to surface, fueled with greater hungers, when the skin begins to crack and itch, when instinct cells tell us what to do next. Upward she strikes to swim for air, and with each inched stroke she forks in her hooks, working past another layer. Sturdy weed roots, worms and clay. She emerges from an old crust flaking that need to make herself new, shirks off her dry summer cloak and leaves her carapace clinging to the low skirt of an oak, then hobbles off into the night forgetting, stinging beneath her new skin, winks away with glassy wings, her hungry song never heard as summer's end closes in to eat her and all her life has been worth. That's great. Now, that was published, correct? Um, that's correct. That was published um, just this spring in the Spoon River Poetry Review. Congratulations. Well, thank you very much. I was pleasantly surprised. As, as anybody would be as a writer, that's a great publication to get into. Yeah, um, it is, and it's, it's based in Illinois, and that's something that when I do try and publish, I try to um, send out my poems to local uh, oh, local journals, and, and this one was based in Illinois, um, ISU. So. Yeah. Now, let me ask you, when we talked sure. before this recording, you used the term that you're a writing writer. What did you mean by that? Maybe I should have said a struggling writer, but no, a writing oh. writer, um, meaning that I, I practice um, every day, and that's something that's very important. Um, I don't just talk about it. Um, but I, I practice it. I make time every day um, to try and write something, um, at least for half an hour to an hour. So I, I write, and I also um, work with other writers and um, try and form, you know, informal groups so that we can respond to one another's work, which is really an important part of the whole process, the creative process. 
Right. I think that there's that big misconception, or well, so many people call themselves writers, and it's amazing how little they write. And I heard Kurt Vonnegut a few years ago say you should get up in the morning and just write a poem and then throw it away. Don't put the pressure of people mm. reading mm-hmm. it. Write it, throw it away, and let the writing process yeah. just be part of your life, which I think is important. Yeah, and I think, you know, there are a lot of people who say that they're writing um, poetry or fiction, but they're not reading it. I think that, that um, NEA just came out with a study that people are reading less imaginative literature and the yes. numbers keep going yes. down, but more people are claiming to write right. it. <laughs> so we need a, we need a good yeah. audience, yeah. too. And it is such a two-way street, the reader and the writer. Uh, you have uh, something else to share, correct? Um, sure. I, I have a couple of new poems. Um, by new, I mean that I'm I'm still in the process. These are pretty raw. I'm still working on them. So this is a special first for our podcast. <laughs> it's a debut, right. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so this one is called The Recipe Box. Beyond the cumin, sesame, dried parsley, and cinnamon, behind my powdered sugar, cocoa, nutmeg, pasta bows, and Crisco, Grandma's recipe box sits, rusting, rarely opened, a wedding gift to you 50 years ago. Newlywed dinners for two, marriage meals, family feasts, nifty, thrifty potluck plans for Aunt Nancy's Waldorf salad, lazy day lasagna, fried pancakes, apple brown Betty, champagne punch, Mm. deviled eggs a la Sue. The careful cards reveal in cursive steps your fingerprints, gravied swirls, clues to your new life as a young wife. Still, I smell those dark mornings you awoke too soon to cook and stew over a roasting stove for cargoes of in-laws and friends, parking grill to bumper along the lane, lice possible cousins tracking mud and snow through the kitchen you scrubbed two weeks before. Through it all, your face bloomed apples, your anger basted slowly with the shyness I would never know, mm. and the desire to make everyone, including me, joyous with meat and potatoes, miracle-whipped salads. That last Christmas, I remember watching the plate, the meal move around your plate, the peas navigated under your dressing, blonde turkey divan fanning the plate like strands of fine white hair. So small were your bites, your martyred hunger of a meatless life was a plate left full. Thanksgiving, he hovers now over me, clucking, checking my breadcrumbs, the pans I used to roast the damn bird. She used to do it like this. She used that pan. She did not use rosemary under the skin. She did not do it like that, not at all. Not like her at all. There is no way to recreate your sage-gouged stuffing, your dry pumpkin pie, your humble tangled turkey, your bland holiday yams. Yet I ponder the recipes you left for me, teaspoon out emotions and cup out all the calls to you I should have made, just the way you would have done. But I realize that I have a cupboard of spices and not a thing to use them on. Now you say that's not finished. It's, it's not finished, no. Really? <laughs> um, it's so good, though. What part is unfinished? Well, I, I, I don't know. I just feel like there, in the previous um, section, there was actually a part about the speaker's mother as a child um, and some unfulfilled mm-hmm. wishes that she had. And I read, 
I read both versions, and I'm not sure which one I'm really pleased with. I think that I just need to walk away from it, which is part of my process too, um, and come back to it, come back to it later, mm-hmm. um, so it can be fresh again. And when you talk about your process, what do yes. you mean by that? Uh, well, you know, writing rituals uh, includes writing rituals too, um, anywhere from having to clean my house before I can sit down with a tablet and a pencil to write. My environment has to be clear for my head to be clear to think. It's silly, but it works. And how, how old is the recipe box? This is only a couple of months old. And I usually spend far longer on my poems before I send them out you for know, publication. Cicada, which was published, how old is that poem? Oh, my goodness. Um, about, about four years old. I think about four years, yeah. And, and so, so I think that's another misconception. Of, I mean, the, the po- poetry, is, it, it's not as lengthy as like a novel, right? But it, the, the, I mean, they're still talking years of work and thought. Yeah, because you're trying to capture the right words and the right sound and the right form to convey the meaning. And I think that sometimes the mistake that some poets make is, you know, they sit down and say, I'm going to write a sonnet or I'm going to write a sestina or a tanka. And they give up meaning for form. Um, and that's mm-hmm. something that sure. I think is, is an error. And I've, I've seen that a lot more in the mm-hmm. contemporary poetry mm-hmm. that I've been reading. Interesting. Now, you had something else that you brought with, right, that, that was unfinished, quote-unquote? Uh, yeah, this is another unfinished poem still in the works. Um, and I know that it's, it's still in process because even when I read it out loud, I find myself changing words as I'm reading. <laughs> so that's a sign to me I'm not quite done with it. Um, but this poem is called Night Shift Nurse at the Eating Disorders Clinic. Um, this particular poem uh, came to me after I was watching a documentary on HBO called Thin, and it was about these you know, these, these girls who were either starving themselves or killing themselves, um, and the nurses that worked with them. And I thought, mm. how strange um, that must feel. And so um, this is what came to me. This is what came to me as a result of that. Night shift nurse at the eating disorders clinic. To these disappearing girls, I must seem an elephant, a clumsy oafish wall of flesh, a fat bologna sandwich waddling around with a Twinkie in my pocket, Fudgesicle, melting in my glove compartment. Mm. Rather average, I tow the line at 165, five four and a half. Compare that to their eager morning bones, stretching before sunrise against the blue skin of their papery prisons. They eat cigarettes and pain, paint their futures in size negative. They are never good enough, never model beautiful or wonderful enough to eat that pasta primavera, a hot fudge sundae, that salmon almandine, it's always a sin or sitting vomit at the back of the throat. They don't know how a lover's fingers can dig and cling to ample hips, how the eye eats on a sweet dimpled thigh or clings to round belly. They do not know how hunger haunts children before school in the city, how our sister refugee will starve so her babies grow bones and teeth. Instead, they sneer at me, the enemy, as I chart their ounces at 5.30 every morning, their nail beds coffin blue, hands just frost, hair limp, yet eyes alive and eyes cursing still. Outside, at lunch, I sweat over a cheeseburger and wish this hunger for them. Mm. 
Now, that's a persona poem. Yes. Do you often write in that format? Um, you know, I do. I write a lot of persona poems, and this came from... Um, and for those of us that may not study literature... <laughs> sorry, sorry, let's, sorry. Let's define, <laughs> define what a persona poem... What counts as a persona poem? Well, I mean, we never want to assume that the speaker in a poem is the poet him or herself. I always tell my students, never make that assumption because we all know what happens when we assume. Um, and just as a fiction writer can create characters... Um, a poet can also create voices um, in order to explore different human experiences. And um, something that I've been studying is feminist autography. And this is basically the idea that, you know, as poets, we can assume the voices of others and talk about their, their experiences. And um, some people may say, well, isn't that, you know, an assumption? Um, and I would say, no, it's, it's a way to try and explore the human experience through empathy and make sure their voices or their experiences are heard when often they're not. Mm-hmm. I once heard... Who wrote Sophie's Choice? Styron. Well, I heard William Styron, who is often criticized because he wrote as Nat Turner, he mm-hmm. wrote as Sophie. Right, and Sophie's right. Choice, I mean, really went out of his way to put himself into the experience of the other. And he said, you know, you can criticize me for how well I do it. Maybe I don't <laughs> pull it mm-hmm. off. But if you tell the author that you can't do it, you have to always be yourself, but well, then we lose the power of literature, right? The ability to explore who other people are. And I think these are great examples of you know, doing that in the form of poetry. So um, earlier you were talking a little bit about reading as a writer. And could you tell us maybe a little bit about who you read, who your influences are? Um, sure. Well, I have many. I'm, I've always been an avid reader, um, even as a little girl. And um, I think that um, some of my influences are definitely Walt Whitman, um, who also speaks of writing in personas and being able to feel what other people feel. I, I definitely had a sure. connection to him. Um, Emily Dickinson, mm. uh, some more contemporary writers, poets, I would say Anne Sexton, Sylvia Plath, um, Robert Lowell, um, W.D. Snodgrass, mm-hmm. um, Sharon Olds, I could go on and oh, on. Um, all great choices. Um, also, William Stafford is one of my, my favorite poets. Great choices, and most of whom are available in the library mm-hmm. as a plug. Most certainly. That's right. Really? Check it out. Yeah. Yeah. Now, you mentioned Stafford. Yes. And didn't your work also win an award that was like named for him? Um, it did. It was actually um, kind of a funny, unique story. It was the first time I'd ever tried to submit to a, a contest of any kind, mm-hmm. and um, it was selected, and uh, I won, uh, the poem won the William Stafford Award for Poetry, and it appeared in Rosebud in spring of 2004. Congratulations. Thank you. So Thank you are an award-winning poet, Aww. and we've revealed it on the <laughs> The secret's out. Yes. Yeah. So Our stock is going up. Uh, what would, could you uh, read one last poem for us before we, before we go? Sure. Um, this... Uh, it's another persona poem, um, and it actually came from some of my students who said, why can't we ever read a happy poem? And I oh. thought, well, there just aren't really that many out there. Because <laughs> right. Always a complaint about poetry it, from people I know yeah. that drag to these readings. Right. Yes. So we're ending on a happy note. Um, I think it's an uplifting one. It's a hopeful <laughs> one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's entitled First Child. As a kid, I drank strawberry knee-high loaded myself up, sticky with its syrup, and in the porch swing, rolling heels against cool concrete, felt my belly slurp and gurgle, sloshing in watery tempo. 
Mother warned I would bloat into a fat seeded bulb ready to gush and split open. I loved the idea of growing red and round, a bright shape easily rolled between fingers and plunged into a watering mouth. In the dark, love, you hover over me, slip ripe fruit between my lips, and stroke my swelling stomach, pulsing with a fresh rhythm, bright as a promise, sweet as a new memory. That's great. Isn't it? Yeah. Sandra, thanks yeah. for joining us. Today. Oh, well, thanks, thanks really for, for listening. Yeah, for having me. And to all of you out in podcast land, we want to thank you for listening. Um, come back and check out these resources and uh, all of our events here at the library. We want to thank you for a great first year and wish you all the best in this coming year, 2008. He's Troy Swanson. And he's Joe Malarkey. Until next time, this has been Check It Out. Thanks for listening to this Moraine Valley Library podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu library.